If you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and open to Hebrews chapter 7. Yeah, we're still in Hebrews, and yeah, we're still talking about a priest named Jesus. Um, last week, I, he would probably be offended if he was here, because he is here. I, I, okay, well. Um, and one day, he will really be here in the flesh. And I think he'd be offended that I compared him to Hot Pockets last week, if you were here for that. If you weren't, then that's an inside joke you're just not privy to. So you'll just have to be in church more often, I guess. Um, you know, I've enjoyed looking at the book of Hebrews with you, but I also know that it can be daunting at times. And so, um, yeah, I just challenge you to, to, to zero in and, and dig with me because uh, we're going to see some neat things once again today in Hebrews 7, and I'm excited about that. And I wanted to combine this week's message with last week's message, but uh, it would have just been too much. And so we're going to see once again just the wonderful things that we know about our Lord and Savior Jesus. You know, we, we use that word priest, and the Bible is big on that word priest. You, you may think, well, wait a second, aren't are, are you a priest? Are you a pastor? I'm kind of confused on this. I, I'm not a priest. Well, Jesus is our high priest. But, you know, the, when we think of the word priest, sometimes you may think of Catholicism and think about the guy that sits in the confessional booth. But you got to understand, this word priest in, in our Bibles doesn't refer to the, the, the guy that is in the Catholic wardrobe that sits in the, the, the little prayer closet. A priest is simply a mediator, an intercessor, something that goes, someone that goes between two parties that are at conflict. And so while me being a priest, I would say, is, is not biblical, Jesus being a priest is absolutely not only biblically, but essential for us. He must be our priest because he is our mediator. He is our peacemaker, the one that brings peace in the midst of conflict between sinful man and holy God. And the Bible is big on that word, priest, because we need a mediator between us and a holy God. In other words, we cannot draw near to God in relationship. And for anyone in this room that wants to go to heaven and be with them, that's a problem, right? We cannot draw near to him unless we have a priest, unless we have someone to come between us and bring us near. And we've been looking at that word for a few weeks, and last week we saw something that's going to be very important for this week, and that is that with a priesthood comes a sort of rule book, or the way that I used it last week was an operating system, sort of like a system of rules that come with a priesthood. And there was an old priesthood in the Old Testament, but Jesus brings a new priesthood, and therefore there was an old rule book, and there's sort of a new operating system. And one can't cross the line into the other. And the way that I illustrated that last week, and I'll do it again this week in case you weren't here, is that in your pocket you may have a cell phone. And likely you have a, an iPhone or an Android phone. And that phone is a piece of hardware. It's a device, but built inside of it is a software. It's an operating system. And that operating system in your phone can't cross the barrier and do what the other operating system can do. For example, if you have an iPhone, you can't access the Google Play Store. And if you have an Android, you can't access the Apple App Store because you're crossing the barrier into the other rule book. You have a device and it has to operate within the confines of that operating system. The reason that's a good analogy, I think, is because in the Old Testament there was a priesthood, a device, and in the New Testament there is a new priesthood, a new device. And with that become an old operating system and a new operating system. The priesthood in the Old Testament could only operate within the system assigned to it, and that was the Mosaic Law, the first five books of the Old Testament, the law. It could only operate within the confines of that system of rules. And so with that priesthood, you had the Old Covenant. 
a covenant of works, which was never meant to remove sin, only to remind of sin. It was a reminder of brokenness, but never a removal of that brokenness. That's why in chapter 7, Hebrews 7, verses 18 and 19, again, we saw this last week, but I'll just start with that this morning. It says, for on the one hand, a former commandment, that's the old covenant, is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. That's the old priesthood. For the law made nothing perfect. That's the old operating system. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. A better system, one that could not accomplish the very thing that we desperately need. Things have changed in the coming of Jesus. We needed to be made perfect. And you think, well, I'm far from perfect. Yeah, no kidding. But if you want to go to heaven, you must be made perfect. And you think, well, I'm still not perfect. I've been a Christian a long time. Man, the good news of the gospel is that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus, the perfection. And so the good news of the gospel is that you can be made, at least by declaration, perfect. In the Old Testament, in the old law, it was simply a reminder of sins, but not a removal. We needed a new device to be made perfect, to draw near. That's why it says in verse 22, which we'll look at in a moment, this makes Jesus the guarantor or the guarantee of a better covenant, a better agreement, a new operating system, the oath of a new forever priesthood and a new forever covenant, not of revealing sin, but of bringing salvation from sin. It's a lot to unpack, but we're going to take our time and unpack it together, all right? So Hebrews 7, starting in verse 20 this morning. Let's have some fun. How about that? Hebrews 7, starting in verse 20, says this. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, speaking of the Messiah to come. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made priest or who has been made perfect forever. You know, as the New Testament church, and this is a New Testament church, us, we are Christians, the New Testament church, and as a New Testament church, we're real big on personal relationship with God. By the way, we should be. We're real big on having a personal relationship with God. Praise God that we can be big on such a wonderful thing. God came to earth, we call that the incarnation, in the person of Jesus, the baby in a manger, to earth because he wanted a relationship with man. Then Jesus ascended, and yet as he left, you know what he said? I'm going to send another. Why? Because he sent the Spirit of God because he wants a relationship with man. In the New Testament gospel, we see a God who resolutely dwells among man and in man. The whole reason that God created man at all in the beginning is because he wanted a relationship with man. By the way, that relationship was lost when fellowship was broken due to sin. And so no longer are men near to God by default, but instead distant 
from him, and those are the wages of sin. So we're big on relationship with God because we absolutely should be. That's always been God's desire is to have a close relationship with human beings. Praise God for that. But we have to bridge the gap between this audience and us. And this audience is an, an audience of Jewish Christians who had a long heritage of a very different understanding than the one that you and I have by default. You see, before the incarnation, which was kind of this people's whole history, is that God's primary means of relationship with man was not in man's hearts as it is for us by the Holy Spirit, but rather in the temple, a physical structure through the sacrificial system which was performed by the priests. And so although he was among them, God was among his people, he was not in them. You see, it's a different game we're playing. He was among them, but he was not in them. And so they took seriously with great gratitude this system that says, God can be among us? The priesthood. They love that. They love it because God has said, I will be among you. Take this priesthood and use it responsibly. He was among them. But even still, there was a barrier Literal, uh, literally a barrier. We looked at, do you have that image, the Solomon Temple that we looked at last week? I think we may have that. Remember that literal barrier we talked about last week where this holy of holies, this special place, this special room, and this special temple represented the dwelling place of God. And you see it kind of, this is an x-ray view of it, but in that room with those big gigantic creatures and the Ark of the Covenant, that represented the dwelling place of God. But they literally had a physical barrier that, that was showing that room from the room beside it. And what it was there for is because People can't go in. People just couldn't go in. In fact, they only let one guy in there. God only let one man in there called the high priest once a year if he did a whole bunch of things to make himself right before he entered because no human being was worthy to be near God. We take a lot of things for granted, don't we? No human being was worthy to be near God. And so they had this, listen, not just a spiritual figurative barrier, they had a literal barrier between them and a holy God. And the fact they were given an imperfect law. Again, one that was simply a reminder of sins, but not a removal. And so the reason I start with that is to say this, that the author of Hebrews is saying here, and I'm here to tell you today, you have a gift of salvation. You have a gift of being brought near to the throne of grace. What the author is trying to communicate to these people steeped in Jewish tradition, and you can take that graphic down. What the author is trying to help them to see as Jewish people steeped in Jewish tradition is that, listen, Something greater has come than that. Something greater has come. Not among men, but in men. Not a barrier, but a barrier that is torn in two from top to bottom. Not a reminder of sin, but a removal of sin. That's why verse 19 we just read said, a better hope has been introduced, one which draws near to God. What a powerful reality, y'all. And so what the author is doing in writing this is saying, listen, audience, You've heard it this way, this condemning way that can never save. I want you to pivot. I want you to to redirect your affections and see that there's something better that God has given us. Not a barrier, not distant, but he wants a relationship with you. Not through a building, not through some old priesthood that can't actually do anything, but a new and living way made open by the work of Jesus. Look at verses 20 and 21 as we sort of begin to walk through this. Oh, by the way, there are going to be some things on the screen in a few moments, but it's going to be sort of the end of our time. It's going to be where we're going to drop application, okay? So let's start in verses 20 and 21 and get into it. So it, he says, and it was not without an oath, which we're going to talk about that oath in just a moment. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. You can read swear or promise. 
But this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. There's a whole lot going on there, but I'm going to simplify it. God never promised that the Levitical Old Testament priesthood would be forever. He never promised that. He never said that this would be final, that this would be forever. Those people died and died and died and died and died. They had a lot, a lot of priests. It wasn't forever because it's the same reason that your job won't be forever because you're going to die one day, right? And every plumber or construction person, everyone that came before you, every teacher, they've died too. There's lots and lots of us, right? Because we all eventually die. And the same was true of their priesthood. They died and died and died. But he promised, God promised that Jesus' priesthood would be forever. It would never stop. And the oath is that the coming Messiah, the coming king, by the way, this is a reference to Psalm 110 verse 4, which we're going to read again in just a second. Before that, in Psalm 110 verse 1, this is a messianic psalm. What the author of the psalm is saying is there's an oath that the coming Messiah or king will also be what it says here in verse 21, which is Psalm 110 verse 4, which says the Lord has sworn, that's an oath, and will not change his mind. You are a priest. This Messiah, the king to come, is a priest forever. No former priest could say that because they died, right? No former priest could say that. But he's saying to the Messiah that is to come, you will be a priest forever. It's like Sandlot, forever. Can I get that one? Yeah, we'll keep going. That wasn't in my notes, okay? Sometimes that happens. We just kind of go off book. Anyway, look at verse 22. So with that in mind, this priest, that Jesus would be a priest forever as opposed to the other guys. This makes Jesus, listen, the guarantor of a better covenant. Yeah, no kidding. Every other priest died. And so obviously Jesus is bringing in something far better. He says this makes, what makes? His foreverness is what makes. It's a persuasive introduction that verse 22 brings in. When he says a better covenant, he's trying to persuade. It implies a tightly held old way, a a tightly held old covenant. By the way, we talked about this in the very beginning of this book when we started Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. And that is that word better or greater, same Greek word, it's used 25 times in this letter. That's almost two per chapter. He uses this word a lot, greater or better, and so you can kind of pick up on a theme here, right? He's trying to get them to pivot from something that's old and not good enough to something that is far greater and better. And here he's saying something better is a better, a greater covenant, a pivot. We had our men's ministry event uh, last night, and if you weren't here, shame on you. I don't know, you missed out, you know what I mean? And if you were a woman, you couldn't be here anyway, so just, sorry, tough. Be here Saturday for your thing, Galentine's, right? We'll drop that later on in the service. But last night we had uh, BYOB, beef, not, you know, the other thing. So, uh, it's just a joke, y'all. So we had uh, BYOB, our beef, and we brought steaks, and some of you guys had like, I think it was like dinosaur or something. I've never seen some of the types of meat I saw last night. Um, I don't even know where you got it. It's probably illegal. So, uh, but, you know, I've always been, you know, I've marinated my steak in different ways. Maybe put some Dales on there or maybe some certain seasoning. But, um, I've, I've learned that there's something better than traditional salt. And I love salt. You know what else? What a flavor enhancer. That's what it is, right? I love salt. It's great. Um, probably going to pay for it one day. But we'll get that. We'll get there when we get to it, right? I know there's a better way. And it's called, anybody know? Kosher salt. That's like an amen moment, church. <laughs> Kosher salt is a better way. And listen, that doesn't mean salt is not delicious. I love salt. Kosher salt is a game changer. If you don't put kosher salt on your steak, I'm preaching the gospel to you right now. You need to go home and, and make, make your life right. Kosher salt is better. Now listen, and I'm getting somewhere with this. When I say that kosher salt is so great, I'm not saying that, that salt, regular salt, is, is worthless. 
I'm not saying it's worth nothing. I'm not saying it's not good. It's still very good. But I've been introduced to something far greater, okay? The law was good. It had a purpose. But what the author of Hebrews is saying is not that, hey, throw away that old Mosaic law. It's pointless. You don't even need to read that anymore. No, he's saying, I'm trying to introduce you to something greater. That's why verse 22 says, a better way. It's a persuasive. I want you to see this better thing. He doesn't seek to tear down the other, but the better, the greater, dwarfs the other. It's a better covenant because it would bring to mind for them, the first century reader to this former covenant that God made with the patriarch named Abraham. We talked to him, talked about him, not talked to him, but talked about him not too long ago, right? What good were all those things that we saw in Abraham? By the way, we talked about this. What could be better than the covenant that God gave to Abraham? A covenant of survival, of providential care, of guidance, of favor. What could be better than that? Simple. A covenant that saves. Salvation is better than that. It doesn't mean that one is not good. It simply means that there's something far superior. What good were all of those things if the one big problem of mankind was left unresolved? There's something better that has arrived, a better covenant. And he says that he's a guarantor of a better covenant. Your translation may say guarantee. I think what the ESV says, guarantor, is better. What that is is this one person. It's a person who personally guarantees that the debts of another person or people will be paid. That's what a guarantor is. Another word for that in our culture is a bondsman. I see the price that they have to pay, and I'm going to take the liability, the responsibility on myself for that debt to be satisfied. Is that not the gospel? That Jesus sees your debt of sin, of death, and says, I'm going to be responsible for that debt, Father. I will pay it. Praise God he's done so. What former priest could compare with that? But even so, such a priest who could guarantee such a powerful mediation would only be as helpful, listen, would only be as helpful as the duration that he was in office. If he died, what good is his mediation? If he's gone, what good is such a mediation? It's worthless. He had to be a priest forever. He had to be. And all of their priests eventually did die but this one not only died, but was resurrected. Look at verses 23 and 24. Continues to build on this, that Jesus is greater. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Notice just some words here that are gonna be contrasted, juxtaposed, right? We see one was, these many were prevented, Jesus is permanent. They died, he is forever. They were many, he is one. But for his mediation to be good news, he's got to be forever. You guys ever be on the phone for a long time with customer service? And like it's some dude in like Pakistan, and you're like, I hope that I don't get disconnected because we've actually made some ground. And then you get disconnected, and you're like, I'm just going to go and die. Right? I've been on the phone with AT&T for two hours, finally got somewhere with this dude from Saudi Arabia, and now I'm on the phone with somebody from the Ukraine. And he don't know my problems. He don't know my bill. He doesn't even know my account number. And so you gotta waste another two hours, right? Because you get to select from somebody that actually gave you some ground to gain. You got somewhere with them, and then suddenly you're back to square one. If Jesus is not a priest forever, it does not matter the ground that we gain with him. But we have gained substantial ground and you will never get disconnected. Isn't that good news? This is the power of the oath. The word oath may be confusing. 
the power of the oath is right there, is that he is a priest forever. And God swears that he will always be there to make intercession, mediation. The one who could finally bring salvation will forever be there to do so. And they were waiting for him. And the author of Hebrews is saying, he came and he ain't going anywhere. Consequently, which is the next word in verse 25. Consequently, so as a result, he is able to save, I love this, to save to the uttermost. Your translation may say completely or something along those lines. Save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives, don't miss always, always lives to make intercession for them. If you're an underline in your Bible person or a Bible memorization person, 25 is a prime candidate. That may be the most powerful verse in this entire book and one of the most powerful verses in your entire Bible. It's so good that I'm going to read it again. How about that? Let's read it again. We can do that. (laughs) Consequently, he is able, you can hang on every word, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Love this verse, man. Able to save how much to the uttermost? He always lives. He's making intercession. Intercession is very similar to, it's similar to the word mediate, right? The one that comes between to represent the two parties and bring them together to bring peace. And peace is a wonderful word because you and I by default don't have, listen, you and I by default do not have peace with the holy God. You and I by default aren't at peace with God. You don't come into this world as a neutral party. You're condemned before a holy God. You have cosmic conflict with the judge of the universe. That doesn't sound like good news. Cosmic conflict with the judge of the universe. And you and I are not innocent. I heard one pastor say, and this may sound shocking, but it's mostly semantics. I heard one pastor say that man's biggest problem is that God is good. God is just. And for us, that's a problem. Because we're not good by default. We fall short of the glory of God by default. And so we have a problem, and that's that God gets the ruling right every single time because he's a good judge. A good judge is bad news for guilty people because the wages of sin is death. It is separation from holy God. And listen, God will not compromise his justice for your pardon. He will not compromise his justice for your pardon, and yet he has promised freedom for the sinner. What gives? How can he do such a thing? Because the gospel is the collision course of God's justice and God's grace. Because the punishment, death, was handed down. It just wasn't handed down to you. It was handed down to the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. The Bible uses that word ransom, redeemed. It's a word that means payment for a prisoner. And that's us. And now, as a result of that, it's so beautiful. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 is one of my favorite verses. It says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. You will. <laughs> but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You know what an advocate is? I've mentioned this several times. An advocate is somebody who defends and fights for somebody that can't defend and fight for themselves. You don't have a case 
before a holy and just judge apart from the atoning, saving, redeeming work of Jesus. It's a good thing you got an advocate. Jesus stands between you and a holy father who absolutely loves you, but he's absolutely just. And he stands between the two parties. He loves you, but he also punishes sin. And in that conflict, Christ rises as your advocate and victoriously proclaims, I've paid it in full. So I said, it is finished. And as a result, consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost. Since he always lives. Always. Don't miss always. And so I want to drop the anchor right there on verse 25. And we'll get to the later verses in just a moment. But I'm going to give you a couple things to walk away with today that I think are really balm for the soul. Number one is that his salvation to the uttermost is not limited by circumstance. It is not limited by circumstance. Your circumstances, my circumstances, whatever they may be, he's not limited by them. It's complete salvation to the uttermost. It's comprehensive. There's nothing that can squeak by what he has done. Everyone in this room needs a priest. How'd you like to hear that from a Southern Baptist pastor? All right. Everyone in this room needs a priest. There's simply no one that wears skin on this planet that can be that for you. He's at the throne of God. We all need a priest. We need a mediator. We need an intercessor, an advocate between us and God. In other words, without a priest, no one in this room has salvation. Without Jesus, no one has someone that can save and be their advocate. You know, a federal mediator comes between two parties. You guys know this, right? It could be like a, a, a divorce mediator or some other sort of federal mediator that's trying, trying to settle a conflict. And a federal mediator comes between and he seeks peace by compromise, right? And so he takes this party and understands their situation. And he takes this party and he understands their situation and says, okay, now in keeping in mind these two situations and what each of them wants and needs, I'm gonna say this person has to relinquish some of their desire. This person has to relinquish some of their desire. Their demands have to come down. Their demands have to come down. They have to forfeit something here. They got to forfeit something there. Parents do this too. We do this. My kids want to watch something on TV. I want to watch this. I want to watch, uh, what do the kids watch? This girl thing. I want to watch this Barbie thing. No, I want to watch Legos. I want to watch pony stuff. I want to watch Batman. And we say, pick something you both like. You're not going to get ponies, Shiloh. You're not going to get Batman, Zion. Join, and, join forces and watch something ridiculous together, right? Because she has to relinquish. She has to come off of her demands. And he has to come off of his demands. And, and mediators in big boy world do the same thing, right? They, you have to come off of yours. You have to come off of yours and find the word for it is a what? Compromise. You've got to reach a compromise. Listen, our mediator, Jesus Christ the righteous, achieves perfect peace. He does not compromise. He does not forfeit. None of it relents. And what I mean by that is, 
in the situation between a great conflict between a holy God and sinful man, you don't have to come off of your sin. He doesn't have to come off of his justice. You can bring every bit of your condemnation, your sin, bring all of your junk to that table and say, here it is. This is all of it. And he can bring every bit of his justice and his righteousness and say, I can't come off of it and remain just and righteous. There is not one speck of sin that you can shield from from God's justice, and there is not one speck of sin that the cross didn't cover. Bring all of your baggage and dump it at his feet because he's not limited by your circumstances, even yours. You may think, man, but I'm so ashamed. And I know some of your story, and it's heavy. I know there's a lot of shame in the room. I know there's a lot of self-imposed guilt in the room and saying, but even this, even this baggage, you don't know the things that I've done, the things that I've buried deep, the burden that I bear. Yeah, I don't. He does. I'm just going to get real this morning, man. There is no, except for this, clause at the cross of Christ. There was no, yeah, but in these cases, the guy that often talked about that was a murderer. There was no except for addiction clause at Calvary. There is no except for abuse clause. There was no except for abortion clause. There was no except for self-harm clause at Calvary. There was no except for sexual sin clause at the cross of Christ. There was no except for those years of godlessness in your young adulthood. There was no except for drunkenness in your background. There was no except for prison, except for failing finances. There was no except for your failing marriage clause at the cross of Christ. God did not reveal your sin to you so that you would bury it. He has revealed it to you so you would dump it out and realize that it has been covered and paid in full. All of it. Without limit. The guilt is well-founded, but so is the grace. So is the redemption. Guys, the mere thought, please hear this, the mere thought that your sin is too vast for God's saving is applying your own limitation on a limitless payment by a limitless God. You do realize that. That argument cheapens the cross, and the cross will never be cheapened. The family tree of faith, and you can go back generation after generation after generation after generation. The family tree of faith is riddled with thieves, drunkards, adulterers, murderers, and everything in between who have collided with grace, been given new life, and have turned to live life anew. Join them. Join us. There's hope there. He's drawing near. He's removed the barrier. And he's not limited by your circumstances, even yours. Second thing, he's not limited by time. Getting back to that forever business, right? He's not limited by time. For all times, it will never expire <clears throat> forever. That's why I emphasize that word in verse 25. Uh, he always lives. Always means always. 
He always lives to make intercession, always mediating, always advocating for us. Verse 26 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And we can't take the time to get into every one of those, but that word fitting is important because fitting means that he fits what human beings most need. We needed a sinless high priest, and he is that. That's why it says holy, which means always living righteously. Innocent, which means devoted to what is good. Unstained, which means not stained by sin. And then verse 27 says that he has no need, because of that, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins, and then for the sins of, his, uh, of the people. Since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. Listen, despite the reputation of so many of their high priests, by the way, that eventually did die, despite the reputation and the holiness of those guys, they were required, check this out, they were required to offer sacrifices for their own sins. In other words, it was the blind leading the blind. They had to offer up sacrifices for their own sins before they could bring sins on behalf of the people because they themselves weren't clean to go into the presence of God. They had to offer for themselves, and then they could go before God for the people. Their job wasn't only annual sacrifices, but daily for myself and then for the people. They were unworthy to do the big one. That's why it's important that it says that Jesus offered one sacrifice, not two. He didn't need one for himself. He himself was not only the one that brought the sacrifice, he was the sacrifice because Jesus didn't need to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. He was not unworthy, but worthy of the presence of God. Jesus' sacrifice, in other words, is not perpetual, it is historical. It's not perpetual, it is historical. Again, that's why he said it is finished, and he did not say it is finished for now. Done. Verse 28. For the law, again, this is the old, the old operating system, the law appoints men, those are the Levitical priests, the old device, the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, the better covenant, which came later than the law, appoints and you expect it to say here, another high priest. That's <laughs> not what it says. Appoints a son. That was a big one to say for the author of Hebrews, who has been made perfect forever. Perfect forever. That was the, the title of last week's sermon and the title of this week's sermon. Isn't that crazy how it works out like that? Appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. When it uses the word weakness in verse 28, again, their weakness, the Old Testament guys, their weakness, it means their sinfulness, which we just talked about, plus they're subject to death themselves. Their priesthood, their law were a combo deal, a device and an operating system. It was weak and unprofitable. It was a covenant that could not do anything. It was a priesthood that had no hope, no perfection, no nearness, which is what we read about in verse 19 just a few moments ago. But in Christ alone, we have a new device, a new priesthood, a new operating system, a new and better covenant that is based upon an oath. And the oath wasn't just spoken to a priest or to a king. It was spoken to God's own son, an oath of forever intercession, a new way, a better way. Speaking of that new covenant, this isn't just the author of Hebrews' language. It's not just the Apostle Paul's language. It was Jesus' language. We're about to take the Lord's Supper, and I thought this was a great segue into that. Luke chapter 22, verse 20, says this. And likewise, this is at the Last Supper, and likewise, the cup the cup that Jesus gave to his disciples. The cup after they had eaten, he took it and said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in 
my blood. And that may sound kind of creepy, but man, is it good news. The new covenant in my blood. Those words, new covenant in my blood, you could look at every word and hang on every single word. Each word takes on profound meaning. It's new because the old couldn't save. It's a covenant because God in his grace was faithful to the promise to save. It's in because there is, in sal- there is salvation in no other. It's my, as Jesus said, because he had to die that we may live. It's blood because only through the shedding of blood is there forgiveness of sin. Life for a life. You can hang on every word and see that that statement is the core of the gospel. And it's yours forever. There will never be a day that you don't need him. And there will never be a day that you don't have him. Advocate. There will never be a day that you don't need him, and there will never be a day that you don't have him. And I'll just say this, because I know that there's a lot of self-imposed guilt in this room. You may think, I gotta clean myself up before. I mean, even me, I've been out of church for so long, and I don't know, man, that, that's asking a lot. I'm gonna say one thing. Any barrier between you and this God is one of your own choosing because today he is calling you near. If you sense a barrier between you and God, I just want to guarantee you of something, you have built it yourself because he is asking and seeking and knocking. Will you respond today in salvation? You know, I heard an analogy one time when I was in school, seminary, about, a, about the gospel, and no, no analogy is perfect, but my professor took out a check like this one, and he said the gospel is like this. Listen, listen. He said, you know, God's written a check for you. It's offered to anyone, and the amount line has written all of your sin, every bit of it. It lacks in no way. And God has extended his hand and said, this is yours for the taking. Is this worth any money if you never cash it or deposit it? No. This does nothing for you if it stays in my hand, right? Today I'm here to tell you that God is not only extending this to your hand, but you can receive it, and it can be worth something to you. But if you do not accept this invitation of this payment, it doesn't matter how hard you try. It does not matter how hard you run toward church. You run toward righteous living. It doesn't matter how hard you try. There is salvation and hope in none but Jesus Christ. And today, God has written you a check and he has extended his hand. The invitation is whether or not you will receive. And today, there is no barrier between you and a holy God unless you are building it there yourself. Jesus made a way when there was no way. The guarantor of a better covenant and he is willing to pay your price.